Ben scene. Okay. Great. I really want to go a little bit sideways now. I think you should. I think um, just like do that and then just put that in the front of the episode. Yes. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So before we kick off today's episode, I just want to say welcome to all of our patients. To keep things um, on the shorter end, I'm going to say hello to everyone in their respective country. Um, while we are in the U.S. and we re- we love all of our U.S. Um, listeners and our U.S. patients, if you really want to hear us, go through the U.S. as we normally do. You let us know. But otherwise, we're going to keep it short and sweet. So if you um, don't want to hear yourself be shouted out because of wherever you live, then you can just skip ahead about uh, like 20 seconds. So hello to everybody in <laughs> the United States, the U.K., in India, our top three listeners. So thank you guys for being here. And hello to all of our patients in Bulgaria, Jamaica, Russia, Australia, Belgium, Italy, El Salvador, Sweden, Nigeria, Portugal, Germany, Canada, Albania, Cuba, Spain, Mexico, Norway. Norway is new, I think. Norway, welcome. We're happy to have you. Uh, the Philippines and South Africa, and to all of you who remain unknown and mysterious. So, mysterious. hello, everybody, and we're happy to have you. Happy 2023. There you go. Hello, everybody. So, I guess we're going to jump right into it, yeah? Yeah. I'm ready for action. Ready? Go. Insert. I, I can do it before you think. Anyway. Insert um, trigger warning <laughs> thing here in editing. Trigger yes. warning. Trigger <laughs> warning. But first of all, let's just do our hello. Oh, hello. That's how I'm sorry. You know, we talked, you know, for minutes prior, you guys, but hello. So, yes, as uh, Darcy was saying, um, I have a very big topic for you guys. And um, it's something that I will first and foremost, before even giving what the title is and kind of getting into it is I just want to say this is trigger warning. This is super, you know, listener discretion. Um, It's going to, it does involve children. Um, It could get very dark. It does get very dark. And, you know, it does involve unfortunately like rape and murder and things of that nature regarding children. So for your warning, please listen with caution. You know, I don't want anybody jumping into this and being like, oh my God, you know, traumatized or anything like that. Just forewarning you guys, like even for me, it was difficult to do some of this research, um, but I think it was a really important story to tell. Uh, it's definitely but predates before I was born or Darcy was born, but definitely something that your parents may know about. So feel free to ask them and see if they remember um, because it definitely was a really, really, really big story at the time. So that being said, if involving children, um, did you take any, would you want to take any guesses at all, Darcy? Oh, and I also saw Darcy had a prop. So I'll also, also, it is also very fitting for this time of year because it's currently being sold right now. I was going to say the pod, the Pied Piper, and now I don't know if that's right. <laughs> So things that are being sold right now, probably, but only for a short period of time of this time of year. This time of year. Okay, so Valentine's Day. It's um, so it's no. got to be Valentine's Day. No? Oh, shit. Um, this time of year? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I was so yeah, ready for, for the pipe piper. <laughs> for any of you guys not, like, not watching, I will describe what I am about to show. Oh my God, Girl Scouts. <laughs> I have myself, my favorite, my lovely box of Thin Mints. So boys and girls, guys and gals, however you'd like to be referred to as, grab your nearest box of Girl Scout cookies because you're going to need this. You're going to need a little bit of sweetness during the story to just munch on. So if you hear some, you know, crinkling of papers or boxes or anything like that, that's me digging into my Thin Mints because I'm going to need it. <laughs> So I'm not yes, really jealous because I don't have any don't Girl have Scout any Girl cookies. Scout. Oh, I am so sad for you, Darcy. The, well, the only reason why I have them is because when my mom was here, she insisted after we went to, you'll know this, our favorite Mexican food restaurant after having one too many margaritas, 
Of course, they had a lovely Girl Scout cookie stand right outside the doors. So she had to buy some. And of course, she asked what I wanted. And I told her Thin Mints, of course, because if you guys have never had Thin Mints, put them in the freezer and they're even way better. Mm-hmm. Comment your favorite. Let us know what your favorite Girl Scout cookie is. We'll put it We'll put it on Instagram, too. That'd be a fun poll to do. Um, okay. I think we'll Thin Mints are the most popular, personally. But I think Thin Mints is the number one. And I think, like, um, Tagalongs and... Oh, what was the other one? Samoas. There was another one. Samoas are another one. There's another one. I like the lemon ones, too. So they changed the lemon ones, fun fact, because they used to be like that really yummy, like powdered, like lemon cookie kind of. They're not that anymore. There's something different. There's still lemon cookie on there, but it's not the same. Which lame. It's it's awful, yeah. They should not do Uh, that to us. So... Well, Very my story, guys, yeah. So my story, guys, is uh, this happened in 1977, and it's called the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. So, mm-hmm. it's, like I said, I'm gonna get a little dark here, but hang with me, okay? But I just wanted to start out this episode by you know a little bit of fun. So I want to see Darcy. Were you a Girl Scout when you were little? Yes, I was. <laughs> Do you have any fond memories of when you were a Girl Scout? I mean. Girl Scouts was kind of lame. Um, the I mean, I the only the only real fun thing we did was um, there was one weekend where we went camping. We went like over the weekend. We did a camping trip, and it was you know, it was like a, a, a wilderness, but it was like in the woods, and it was like a big facility, and we all camped inside, kind of like auditorium style, and um, we got to go see like ruins and like old native american areas where there was like clay pots and stuff now the fact that it's just like open to the public i kind of feel is fake <laughs> there's nothing blocking it off from people just like messing with stuff but it was fun we got to like all hang out in camp and like just hang out together and that was probably the coolest thing i remember but the rest of it was just kind of lame yeah I can't remember i, was, I meant to text my mom and see how many years i was in girl scouts i know it was like Quite a decent amount of time. Um, but yeah, like we, we have to do some cool things. And of course, you know, back when you and I were Girl Scouts, our cookies probably sold, I think, they were what, like 2 or $3. And now they're like her 5 $6, which is, you know, definitely a big change there. Of course, the selling of Girl Scout cookies and stuff. And, um, and I remember a couple of memories. Like I started out, I think when I, I think when you're like little, they're like, when you're wearing the brown, you're called like brownies or whatever. Like you, you change colors as you get older. Mm-hmm. And I, I went all the way up until you're wearing that awful green color. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. stuff green. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think it was probably like up to like sixth grade or something like that. And I remember being in my troop and I always felt kind of special because I got to be part of like the older girls group because that was all that was open. Mm. So they were all mostly one year older than me. There was another girl there that was a, the same grade as me. Um, but we got to do some kind of really cool things. Of course, we did the stereotypical camping and stuff like that. Um, we also did, I remember one year we did like this like California trip or something like that it was. And I remember like that's where we learned to go surfing and stuff like that. So I thought it was like the coolest shit ever because like I could do surf and I knew how to surf. Um, that. But then, you know, like they said with the stereotypical camping and stuff like that, I don't have to tell you, please, like, <laughs> tell me this is not my mom. So my mom tried to be involved as much as she could and decided that she was going to come with us and the troop leader, who was one of the other moms, on a camping trip. Um, so what they did was, like, all of us girls were in a tent, and then they had their tent, and so we were all just, like, piled into these tents. So the other troop leader and my mom were sleeping well, long story short, neither one of them could sleep the first night because they were too uncomfortable. So then that day, I think it was my mom that left, went down to the nearest town. I think we we're probably like in Prescott or Payson or something, somewhere like that in Arizona, uh-huh. in the northern parts, and went to the nearest Walmart to buy an air mattress. Bought an air mattress for the second night. My mom tried to sleep on an air mattress, still couldn't, ends up sleeping in the car. That sounds about That's- right. That's my mom for you. Not not the best camper in the world. She tried. Yeah. She's definitely a glamper, you know? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> she, she definitely did. The other mom, she did fine, like, because she was more like the the rough camping, outdoorsy mom. And my mom's over here like, I need to go get an air mattress. <laughs> I love that for her. Yes. Did you guys ever oh. do the... um? I don't know, was it Girl Scouts? I don't know, I think it was. Because I did Girl Scouts up until we moved when I was in fifth grade. But we, there was one time we did like a limited two thing and we got to go to like limited two and like do some kind of like corny like fashion show for our parents. And then it was like, if they wanted to buy stuff for us, it was like 30% off. And I was like, I thought it was the coolest fucking thing in the world. But like, that's what you do in Girl Scouts. You play sleepover and then you try on clothes. They don't teach you how to build a fire or how to survive in the woods or how to fight a bear. It just lets you do all those things. Or, you know, they teach you how to surf, you know. Or they teach you how to surf. I would have preferred learning how to surf, but it's fine. Oh, the fact that you said limited to that brings back such memories. Yeah. I remember like in their dressing room, they had like those like really thick mirrors that look like they're like made of like jelly or something like that. Yep. Ridiculousness. Um, but I also wanted to put this little bit in here. So I know a lot of our listeners are um, over in other countries and stuff like that that may not necessarily have Girl Scouts. I just want to give like a little brief synopsis of what Girl Scouts is. So if you haven't gathered already, it's something that younger girls do from like Darcy and I's conversation just now. Um, and it was founded in the early 20th century. It basically is an organization um, that is dedicated to empowering young girls by instilling things like confidence, courage, and independence through different activities. You do like community service, you do camping, you know, it's supposed to be like this huge bonding thing. So every January, like middle January time is when um, in America, what we see are these, you know, the little stands typically most commonly and they're outside of like grocery stores. Or like in my case, when I got mine, is outside of a restaurant. Uh, a dispensary. Or yeah, there's dispensaries now that will have them come. So that's fun. It's great. I'm sure they sell lots of boxes there. Um, but you try to sell as many boxes of Girl Scout cookies as you can. But like as a fundraiser, I think if I'm not mistaken, like a lot of it is like depending on like how many you sell and like your your troop success is like how some of it is how you're paying for like your various troops for the following year. So your goal is to try to sell as many boxes as you can. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of like what Girl Scouts is. And I, I think it can go all the way up through high school even. I don't think I ever did. I think I like I said, I maybe went to sixth grade, maybe middle school. And like the older you get, they start doing things more for like getting you prepped for college and things like that. It's supposed to be very like women forward organization. Um, I do know, side note, that there has been a lot of controversy. I know like Boy Scouts of America has had a lot of issues. I'm not sure about Girl Scouts, to be honest. Um, but sometimes like just know that I am well aware too that not all these organizations have the best interests that are usually um, but that's not what this episode's about. So we will not talk we will not cover the patriarchal um what is what is it called? Wow. But I mean the patriarchy is its own thing, but um capitalism. <laughs> the yeah, capitalistic yeah. patriarchy of America, that's a different episode. And um, using children to sell shit for you to sell. That too. Um, but yes, so going into my actual story here, like I said, it happened in Oklahoma. It took place, the event itself took place on June 12th of 1977. That's where I was saying, like, ask your parents a lot of the times they will remember. Uh, especially if you have older parents like I do. My mom was, uh, I believe, like 17-ish at the time. Um... It occurred at a place called Camp Scott, and that is in Locust Grove, Oklahoma. Um, and unfortunately, I will be very blunt and honest with this going forward in case anybody needs to turn it off. This is where, unfortunately, three girls um, that were Girl Scouts had their lives ended far too short. Um, their names are 10-year-old Doris Denise Milner, 9-year-old Michelle Gousset, and 8-year-old Lori Lee Farmer. So... Rest in peace, girls. They had their lives taken far, far, far too soon. Um, to kind of set the scene for you, this is kind of like, it's a big deal, especially back in the 70s. Like, being a Girl Scout was the biggest thing. Like, every girl was a Girl Scout. Um, 
there are multiple sources that I use to, to research. A big one being, some of you may be familiar with this topic because on Hulu, they did do like a docu-series um, and it did pretty good. I, I'm still kind of finishing up the last bit of it, um, but it goes over and let me pull up her name really quick. It was hosted, I think it's like a four-part series and it's hosted by, it's at the very end here. Um, Kristen Chenoweth, she's an actress. She looked familiar when like she like did the series. So I don't know exactly where I saw her from. Um, but she actually grew up in the same area. So in Oklahoma. And it's kind of sad and like chilling almost too, because she talks about how she was supposed to be going on that trip even herself and how like it haunted her for like the rest of her life. She's like, I was literally supposed to be there. And she's like, the only reason why I couldn't go was because my mom told me I couldn't go because I got sick. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of like really shook her. Um, So she wanted to do this docuseries about it. Plus it's just, the story itself is absolutely bananas, like how it unfolds and everything like that. Um, But basically it's, it's sad too, because it goes into like the children's families and they kind of explain what it's like when you were sending your kid off to camp. Um, So right before up leading to, so like June 11th and stuff like that, they're all getting ready. All the girls are, most of them are really, really, really excited. And it goes into detail about how, um, I think it was Dorsey, Doris Denise Milner. Um, her mom will talk about too how she was at first really excited to go. She wanted to go. And then sadly, it was like the day that she was supposed to leave. Her mom was like, I just kind of assumed that it was a little bit of like fear of being homesick and stuff like that. Like she'd never been away from home. Doris was really adamant she didn't want to go. And sadly, her mom was like, no, you're going to go. Like, just thinking like, oh, she's just, you know, she's just getting scared and she just needs to try something new to get away, to like maybe make friends and get out there because she's kind of like a quiet girl. Um, so yeah, her mom's like, no, you're going to go. And like, of course, but if anything happens, like call me, you know, and I'll come pick you up. Um, so they all meet, I guess there's like this big, kind of almost like a gymnasium. Um, and we're like, they said it was like chaos because there's like hundreds of girls all these children everywhere, moms, like parents with all these suitcases, luggage, sleeping bags everywhere, all over the place scattered. And you're getting your child on this big giant Greyhound bus like thing. And um, sadly, that's the last time they, that those three families saw their children. And it's super sad. Um, There are some chilling stories I'm about to tell you too about leading up to the actual incident itself. Uh, So I'll kind of dig into those right now. So months leading up to this trip, Camp Scott itself, which had been open for for a long time, for years and years and years, it was a camp for literally this, for like Girl Scouts to come. It was like a, a yearly thing. And I think they even had like a Boy Scout camp nearby too. And where children would come spend, like I think it's usually like a two-week long camping trip um, each time. So, um, but these are some things that had happened right before this year. And so first, one of the things that happened was a counselor was just kind of doing one of their rounds around before the girls had even shown up. And they found that one of the tents had been slashed open. So that's a little odd. And second, um, many campers in the previous times before like this trip were always mentioning how some of their things had kind of gone missing and they couldn't really explain why. So that's also a little odd. Um, then there was also reports of like strange noises being heard off in the distance that, you know, couldn't really be explained. You know, they couldn't say whether or not it was like a bear or anything like that. So they thought that was a little bit odd. And then the creepiest one, in my opinion, was a counselor had even found that food had been stolen out of like, I guess, like a storage area. And in place was a handwritten note proclaiming, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. So, yeah, little ominous in my opinion, but they kind of saw that all these things kind of more as like pranks and kind of deemed it being like harmless. Because I guess like, you know, it's been known because like this is, this is if you think about it, like in the back country of Oklahoma. So it's like, I'm sure they see all sorts of boondock parties going on out there, like just random things, you know, kids out drinking and stuff like that. So maybe they just assumed, oh, this is probably just like another prank, you know? 
Same as maybe when the tank got slashed open, although I think that's awfully violent. Um, but yeah, so. Sure. Right. Fast forward to the actual day itself, which is the night of June 12. Uh, I guess what had happened that day was the first day they were there. Um, the girls were just trying to figure out what tents they were or what areas they were supposed to go to and like who their counselor was going to be. And shortly after arriving, there was like this huge thunderstorm that I rolled through. So that kind of like put a damper on all of the activities that they were supposed to do. So I guess they were able to still like, they had like a big, big canopy area and they still were able to sit and like sing songs and like eat food. And they just kind of like did little bonding things and stuff like that. Um, crazy thing is too, and it breaks my heart was the first day when they were there, they were told that they should write letters to their families. So all the girls were able to write a letter to their family. And so these three girls, unfortunately, too, had written a letter. So that's like the last thing that their families heard from them. That's so sad. Yeah. And it gets even sadder because like in that docuseries too, the the mom of Doris, the one that didn't want to go, read a a little little part of the handwritten note her, her daughter did. And like one of the first words was that, I just want to come home. I hate it here. Oh, God, that probably eats away at her or ate away at her. I don't know if she's still alive, like, every single day. Yeah. But, you know, and, like, I just hope that she tells herself, too, that she didn't know this was going to happen. Like, obviously, you know, she was just trying to get her daughter to go out and have fun and, like, do something new and make friends and stuff. But she was young, you know, and I know she, like I said, she was the quiet one that she was just... I know somebody had said that she was more like the old soul. So that she had like a hard time bonding with like other girls her age. that just want to like giggle and have fun and be crazy, you know? So, but it was, it was sad and a little bittersweet. Um, and then I just kind of want to also give you guys a little description, a little bit of what, how, how each area was kind of separated off. So to put it into perspective, like I said, there's hundreds of girls here. So this Camp itself, they said, was something like 400 acres. So it's huge. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you basically got separated off. You got put into different groups, almost kind of like your troops, probably. And um, each one would be almost in like their own separate campground away from every other person. So like you were kind of segregated off into your own little groups. Now, within each group, they were saying that it's kind of like you were set up in like a horseshoe-like pattern. So, like, in the middle, they had, like, a, like a central area where, like, you can, like, sit at a table probably or do whatever. And then, like, kind of in the forefront near the middle as well was, like, the counselor's tent. And then they said, like, in, like, a U-shape, like, horseshoe out of it would be, like, all the surrounding men girls' tents. And they were supposed to say that that would be the safest. Now, keep that in mind, though. These small little kind of, like, pods are... You, they say it seems like you're so far away from everybody else because you have like trees all in the middle of each, you know, you have like a pathway almost you have to get to to get to your camping area. So it's still, you, you felt really isolated, even though you kind of weren't, but kind of were, if that makes any sense. So unfortunately in this pattern, um, one of the furthest away tents from the counselor's tent was the tent for Doris, Lori, and Michelle. So this is where it gets a little, little creepy. So sometime in the night at around like 1.30-ish, um, the counselor for their group, her name is Carla Wilhite, she recalled hearing a strange, quote-unquote, air quote, guttural moaning. And let me just say the word guttural itself is just, I don't like it, but it's, she said it's the best way you can describe it. She said it's anywhere between like a moan or like a growl, but somewhere in between. So she heard that at 1.30 in the morning in the pitch darkness after it just gotten done raining, like everything was damp, everything was silent, you know, like dead silent. Um, also, also keep in mind that Carla Wilhite at the time, when I say counselor, I don't want you guys to think an adult. So Carla herself, I think, was maybe her late teens tops. So she was fairly young herself, and she talks about how she loved um, 
going and doing this camp so much because she also did it as a child as well. So she was like, I need to do this as I get older and like be like a leader, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she she herself was not by any means like an average adult per se. She was just maybe in her very early years, 18, 19, I shift at tops. Um, but anyway, so she hears that strange guttural sound. She had assumed that it was a wild animal, but she still was like, okay, I'm going to go investigate a little bit. I'm going to go off the tent because it just, she said something just did not feel right. So she grabs her flashlight, bravely goes out in the darkness. She's kind of wandering around trying to figure out where this sound is coming from. She said that whenever she would move her flashlight and it's, you know, or trying to find something, the sound would stop. And then if she appeared like she was going to go step away or go back to her tent, the sound would start again. That's weird. And, she, and she's like, that was kind of like my first gut instinct of like, okay, this can't, this shouldn't, I don't think this is an animal because that doesn't make, you know, they're not going to know when and when not to make a noise like that. You know, I don't know. So she's like, I knew something was off. But like I said, keep in mind, she's not really old herself. So what was she going to do if she found something? You know, she says that she carries a lot of guilt and stuff. She's like, I don't know if I should have investigated more. She's like, you know, but at the same time, in my head, I'm thinking, well, what was she really going to do? You know, right? she's were, by herself. Were there, were there any adults on the campsite with them? So, yeah. So Camp Scott had like owners of the campground and they were adults, obviously, because they own the campground. Um, but they weren't like anywhere near like that where they were actually camping. They were in like their separate building or whatever, like their home. Um, but yeah. So she, Carla ends up going back to bed. She's like, it creeped me out. She's like, but I didn't know what to do. So the less it was happening, she's like, I just kind of like backed away and went back to the tent, the counselor's tent. Um, and then kind of fast forward to around 3 a.m., these are just from various uh, sources I read, you guys. Um, this is one of the sources said that um, the press had released that another camper, probably a young girl, I'm assuming a young girl, had heard a scream coming from the tent housing the three girls. Um, she also stated that she remembered hearing somebody else cry out for their mother. Oh. Um, but like I said, these campers were eight, nine, ten years old. They didn't know what to do. So when they hear things like that, they're like, they're probably scared to death, you know? And they're like, well, I just, I'm in the, I'm in the middle of nowhere, you know, trying to figure out what to do. And then they end up just trying to go back to sleep, really. And I know that sounds kind of fucked up, but, you know, what would you do if you're eight or nine years old? That's what I'm saying. That was like, a kid is going to react the way a kid is going to react. Like, and that's normally like, I don't know what that is. Like, I don't know how to, do anything with that and when you're in an environment that you're unfamiliar with and there's no authority figure to your knowledge in a close vicinity you're probably just gonna freeze and hide under your blanket and hope the monster goes away you know what i mean oh yeah oh yeah and that's where i also wanted to i forgot to add this disclaimer but if your child is in girl scout do not let them hear the story because if i would have heard the story as a child i hadn't scared shitless like, if somebody tells me I can hear a guttural noise off in the distance as I'm camping, now, granted, I've gone camping plenty of times now as an adult, and even now, if I hear, because, like, especially um, if anybody who lives in the woods knows this, too, they're like, if you hear an elk or anything of that nature, they make the creepiest noises at night. Let me tell you. It sounds like a woman screaming. Yeah. So, you know, what were these, these tits probably had no idea what they were hearing, you know? But yeah, definitely don't tell your children this story, please. Please, please, please. <laughs> um, so as morning came around, it was around probably around 6 a.m. I guess Carla, she had set an alarm so that she can wake up early enough and kind of get started on her day before obviously all the kids woke up and started doing their activities. So she was making her way down the pathway, I guess, you know, like I I think there was like a like a shower tent area um to get started for her day. And then often they did like pathway she kind of sees by a tree or look like uh sleeping bags and she's like huh that's strange i wonder if these kids just dropped them here you know and then now they're all soaking wet i might as well go go pick them up and you know make sure that they dry out for the next night um but unfortunately as she gets a little bit closer she sees the body of a girl 
So she immediately sees that the girl appears dead. She concludes you know, she was dead. She didn't really go into details how, but I'm sure we can all speculate how you can see that somebody's dead. Um, so she runs off to find with those adults that you were asking about, which are the camp owners. And ironically enough, the, the husband was an ER nurse. So he immediately rushes over to and he just drops everything and runs because he's thinking like, maybe I could save a girl's life. You know, she's dead, but let's, let's investigate. And uh, once he gets onto the scene, he discovers that unfortunately the sleeping bags next to the one girl found in the pathway were not empty and contain the other two girls basically shoved at the very bottom of the sleeping bags. No. So, um, sadly, it would be discovered that all of them were dead uh, and that one of them had evidence of being raped before she was killed. So, very, very sad moment, for sure. Um, Immediately, they had no idea what to do because you still have hundreds of girls here at this campground. What the hell are we going to do? We don't want to instill panic, you know. We have to try to keep them this home. That's what you got to do. Well, yeah. But at the time, because so actually the camp itself, when I was like explaining how they were getting on the Greyhound buses, were probably like a decent amount of time, at least an hour's away from where they were living. Yeah. Um, so immediately following the event, they of course call the police. The police show up. They caution tape everything off. Um, Carla, I get her a lot of props. You can tell she definitely suffered a lot mentally from this ordeal. Uh, but she tried to keep herself together. She said what we ended up doing was like we gathered up the girls basically and they distracted them by like sending them. She's like, at first I woke them up saying, you know, we were so upset with them because they were being too loud that night because she had mentioned that, you know, probably around like 9, 10 p.m. The girls were all still giggling and you don't like girls do, especially when you're out camping, your parents aren't around, you don't want to go to bed. So they're being kind of a little loud and rowdy at first. So she pretended she kind of like acted on that and was like, okay, she's like, we're going to have to separate you guys now. And so she separated the girls out to smaller groups. And she's like, okay, you girls are going to go take that trail and you're going to go learn about that. And then you girls are going to go over here and explore this area and stuff like that. But basically like divert them from going down that major pathway where the bodies were. Right. So kudos to her on that because she managed to get them all distracted for the time being, at least. Because it took it took some time for them to organize getting the buses back there to get them back home. Yeah. Uh, they also interviewed in the docuseries to a couple of the media personnel that they had um, that had first arrived on the scene. And um, so they went through like kind of like the process. So the obviously every cop in the nearby area were all flocking there so you had the whole like like cop car after cop car after cop car thing coming through and then you have a whole section off where like all the media was and they were just filming as much and taking pictures as much as they could and um finally it got out in the news what had happened and they contacted all the family members and they were supposed to return back to that same gymnasium where they dropped their children off and we're supposed to be there to pick up their children again. So it slowly started trickling out our information because at first they're like, well, what happened? You know, they were trying to figure out what could this be? Like, why am I having to go pick up my child again? I just dropped him off yesterday. Mm-hmm. And of course, word gets out that girls were murdered. And I just like, I had to sit there for a moment and really think like, how awful would that be as a parent? Because this is like said so back in the 70s, no, nobody had cell phones, you know? So they're literally just driving to this gymnasium and having to sit there and wait for these buses to show up to see if their kid gets off of it or not. Like, that would just I be so feeling the anxiety. It's like you know, it sucks to say, but it's it's like the school shootings. Like my sister, my sister, her kid went to the high school that got shot up, and um, and. It was like, a, and that's not the only school, but it's like when these things happen, it's like parents rush to the school and they're just like hoping their kid runs out of the building, you know? Yeah. And then that's where it's like, I don't know, I was like talking to my aunt even too about, I have younger cousins um, that, you know, they're talking about possibly getting them cell phones and stuff like that. And like, I know there's pros and cons to like having cell phones as a child, but like the one thing that I think it is good for is that like, if something like this were to happen, like that would have been such a, 
good piece to have is just to know, like, be able to reach out to your your daughter and be like, hey, are you okay? You know, because uh, the shitty thing is, too, is like, as these parents are sitting there waiting for their children to show up, I guess they got delayed by like over an hour in the bus. So they go an additional hour to even get home. And so I'm like, that might have been like the longest couple hour wait ever. And like, they showed little video clips too. Like, you can just see a look on the parent's face, like just a pure relief, you know? And unfortunately, these three families didn't get that. And it's absolutely the most heartbreaking thing to see. Um, And yeah, so going forward a little bit, I'll go... I'll start digging into a little bit of the investigation going forward. Uh, luckily enough, numerous evidence pieces were actually found at the scene. Um, going through it here, hold on. I just totally missed my mark on my notes. You guys. Laptop set. Okay, there we are. So the first piece that they found was a large red flashlight. So... Picture this, a 70s flashlight. They're huge. They're like bricks, like in size. They're ginormous. They actually have this handle and a huge battery pack that I think takes like eight batteries or some crazy shit like that. The big ones, the big batteries, like the Ds or whatever they are. And um, so they found a big red flashlight on top of the bodies, basically. Like it was almost left there as like a present, in my opinion. It was like, I don't know. Like, I don't, if, you know, there's something like that being used, like I wouldn't have just... I don't think it was an accident that was left. That's just my opinion. Um, but they said what was crazy about it was that this individual, whoever did it, was smart enough that on the, the lens itself, these big flashlights back in the day were like really big. They're probably like a diameter of at least like three inches, if not larger. So a large mm-hmm. diameter for the actual like light to come out of. And what they had done was they used a black trash bag and like duct taped it around the actual lens. And then basically cut out a small, like almost like a pinhole. So that way, when you turn the flashlight on, instead of it shining like a bright beam of light all over, it was like a directed small beam so that like they could probably get around in the woods and just make sure they didn't trip and fall on a rock and control like the amount of light that they let out versus, you know, it lighting up half the forest. And then uh, when investigators like looked into like the, the flashlight more, they, they, they kind of picked it up and like, this kind of feels weird. They opened up the battery pack and then, I don't know why they did it, but probably to keep it quiet. So in order to keep the batteries from kind of like jiggling around, they kind of like jerry-rigged it, like just kind of literally what they used was like newspaper to like kind of cushion the batteries so they didn't make so much noise. Huh. Okay. So keep the Sounds like a fire hazard, but yeah. okay. <laughs> Keep all that in mind. And uh, I guess the on the lens itself, too, there was a fingerprint that they were able to get. But they said, of course, the fingerprint was too smudged for it to be useful in any way. Wow. Um, so the tent itself, um, unfortunately, was covered in blood. So it did appear that the, uh, at least a couple of the uh, girls had died in the tent that they can confirm. Um, so it was just absolutely everywhere the the photographer said like she had never seen a scene like that it was just it was on the tent itself and when i say tent you guys like i don't want to i don't even think of like your typical like pop-up tent you know that you get in a bag not like one of those so when i say tent it's kind of like more like a tent cabin thing so it's still got like a wooden floor i know like imagine your scary horror movies where you're like in this canvasy like cabin thing that's kind of what I'm referring to as when I say tent. So it's just like a central pole and some poles on the outside to hold up the canvas itself and to, you know, kind of make sure that it's like waterproofish, I guess, with like bunk bed type things on the inside or beds on the inside, cots, whatever you'd like to call them. But still you're on like a floor, like a wooden floor. Um, so luckily on the wooden floor, you know, you had all the blood splatter, but also I know it's, I shouldn't say lucky, but you know, there's blood on the floor. Um, they also found in the blood a clear, like, nine-and-a-half size shoe print. So they were able to get that. So that's good. Um, so, like I said, the camp size was a, the campsite itself was about 400 acres. They immediately started, like, panning out in the surrounding areas. Um, and some of the things that they found were duct tape, rope, and women's eyeglasses. 
Yeah. So kind of like a weird combination of things. But I also got, I want you guys to remember the women's eyeglasses because I'll see if you guys can remember it later on. Um, so as they continued their search, uh, they said that in this surrounding area, there were numerous kind of like caves or like rock overhangs that you could get shelter underneath. Uh, investigators found a caves in specific that it had evidence that somebody had been living there. Uh, freeloader yeah so in that cave they also found newspaper and guess what the newspaper matched the newspaper and the yes it was the same newspaper they found in the flashlight yes now outside the cave um, they said unfortunately they saw they were small little, um, like, fire areas, like little fire rings. So there's four of them in total. And one of the investigators, um, he was actually a Native American. And he's like, when I saw that, he's like, the first thing I said is, like, oh, please don't let it be a Native American that did this for a ritual. Oh. Because he said it looked ominously like what somebody would do for a ritual. That? news to me and i am an ignorant privileged white person so i know how this is about to sound and please like i i get it but it's like anything i've learned about native american culture and anything in that realm i've never heard of basically ritual sacrifice i've never heard like from animal to human and everything got something dark about it but that's the i learned something new i didn't even know that that was a thing yeah i don't know if it's so much in like native american culture like i know about like you know i was like the aztecs and stuff like that like i've heard about their sure their ritual type stuff like their sacrifices and whatnot but i don't know so much about the native american culture and i mean to be entirely honest too like i think you could say as well like we obviously we're born and raised here in america and I don't really know a whole lot about like the whole Native American culture because it is kind of like a secretive thing, you know. And I mean, they have every right to, to have their their traditions and their cultures be a part of what they want to believe, and that's it, and not necessarily be so public about it. And I totally understand that. So I truly don't know in regards to like if there ever was like any evidence of that in the past, maybe too that it was done. I don't know, but I do know like it's like that investigator that came across this cave did say that the fire. The little fire pits or whatever you want to call them that he found made him really think that it was a Native American that did it. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the last time Native Americans were friendly with white people, they were rushed out of their homeland and like forced away. So I can see why they were, uh, you know, yeah. But yeah, I mean, do we, okay. Is this an unsolved case? Well, I can't tell you that yet. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. We got to keep the listeners listening, okay? Look at my shirt if you want to keep listening. Oh, if you're watching, look at my shirt. (laughs) Yeah, to you listening, you can't see it, but it's a very lovely shirt, so you should go watch our YouTube channel, too. (laughs) It's from the Star Wars burlesque show, The uh, the Empire Strips Back. They're in San Diego for like 12 weeks and like starting in March. Um, This is not sponsored, but it was such a great show. Go, go, go to San Diego. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, it's me that really ended. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yes. So get back to the scary shit, though. Um, You want to know what they found written on the wall in the cave? Red rum. Close, but no. Um, it says, quote unquote, the killer was here. Bye bye, fools. 77 6 17. The date? That was that the date? Right. Yeah. 7 7 6. That was, that was just, I'm sorry. It was 77 6 17. Seven seven dash six dash seventeen. The fuck does that mean? I don't know. 
But it's funny that you asked if it was a date because you just made me realize something. I was like, it what? could be a date. So don't get me wrong. Like, I'm sorry, you guys, if I sound really stupid right now. But I know like in other countries across the world too, uh, isn't it where you do the, the year first and then the month and the day? Day, month, year. Oh, but it couldn't be. Because here we do month, year. year. I wonder if it could be, but maybe. So. No, because it happened. Okay. Because I was like, wait a minute. Is that the date that it happened? But no, it was the 12th that it happened. So why would it say 17? I don't know, you all. Like, Maybe that was the ages of the killers. Hey, who said there's more than one killer, though? Who said there wasn't more than one killer? I don't know. I mean, I'll, I mean, I get it. They're kids, but all I'm saying is, I was a loud ass kid, and if you put three of us in a tent, and one person comes up in that tent, someone's getting bit. Like that's all I'm saying. Is like, how do you hush up three kids by yourself? All right, I want you to keep that thought in mind too. Okay, keep keep yeah. that thought because we're gonna we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Going forward with the, the Girl Scout murders, I'm going to start now that we've talked about the actual event itself and then the, the short following afters of the investigation, we're going to get into a little bit more. So I'm going to tell you, Darcy, about suspect number one. So suspect number one being a man named Gene Leroy Hart. So... I'll briefly get into who Gene Leroy Hart is. So Gene Leroy Hart was a local of Locust Grove, Oklahoma. So he born and raised in that same area and the actual event occurred. And he indeed was a Native American Indian. Great. So he was Cherokee Indian. Um, and I just want to briefly touch base with you guys. Because like I said, this is 1977. Darcy had also mentioned it already is the to be very blunt it's the racism of the, that era basically um so it was, a, it was a big 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 thing in the media is that you know of course here's this indian being this native american being paid for the the suspect of this crime you know so immediately people were all in uproar with, with that you know you had the native american saying like of course the white man would Blame the Indian for this, you know, and all this stuff. And, um, you know, there is some some validity in that, you know, because, like I said, of the era, um, the sheriff of the county was a white man, Sheriff Weaver is his name. And um, but all that being said, I'll get into a little bit more who Gene Leroy Hart was and ultimately how they came to the conclusion that they believe he was suspect number one. Um, so getting into it, um, growing up, Gene seemed like an everyday average kid. Um, in fact, men, like multiple members of the community remember him as being a um, fairly well-known football star. So in high school, in this area of the country too, in Oklahoma, they, everybody was talking about how high school football was like the most popular thing. And in a lot of areas, it still really is not so much. In Arizona, where Darcy and I grew up, but, you know, in certain areas of the country, like, it's, you know, you, it's the highlight of the week, you know, you get the Friday night football games with the seniors, and, you know, he was just, like, they remember him as being, like, the star, like, he always got the touchdowns and stuff like that, like, you know, he was just an all-around good American kid. Um, in fact, like, they even said that he was known to have, like, scholarship offers um, to go to college to play football. Um. Unfortunately, though, he did not ultimately go to college. They said that very shortly after graduating high school, he ended up getting married. Uh, he did have one child that we know of, um, that I researched at least, um, with his wife at the time. And um, they, he spent a couple of years raising the, the child with his wife. But ultimately, their marriage did not last. So they did end up getting divorced. They separated. And... Basically, that was the start of like Gene's downward spiral, hardcore. Um, 
He was arrested multiple times for numerous little petty things over the years uh, until ultimately he was um, caught doing a very major crime. Um, so one of his biggest known crimes being that he actually kidnapped and raped two women in the year of 1966. That's not a cute look. No, no. So going into that first crime of jeans, um, it was, like I said, June of 1966. Um, at that time, Gene was working for a company called Flint Steel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So it's a big, very big town in Oklahoma. Um so instead of going to work one night, Gene decided that he had other plans. Um, so his plans basically were that he drove his car down to an area in Tulsa known as the Corner of Dreams. There's a couple fingers. 7th Street and Van Buren. Understood. <laughs> um, basically, this area in Tulsa got its name as a Corner of Dreams because of the known local bars and kind of nightclub scene where it highlighted a lot of the the local um, up-and-coming music at the time. So they said that, like, you know, I forget, they named off, like, a couple different, like, known musicians that played in this area. And, like, I mean, at the time, I'm sure they were really popular, but none that really, you know, spoke out to me because hey, this is back in 1977 <laughs> or 60s, I should say. Um. So Gene decided that night that he was going to stop by a little bar slash nightclub. You want to get, you're going to love this name, Darcy. So this bar nightclub was named the Fondelite Club. (laughs) Which, by the way, is an amazing venue. I went to the Fonda for the first time last week and it was wonderful. The Fondelite? No, the Fonda in LA. It's called the Fonda. Yeah, this is the Fonda Light. The Fonda Light. I bet you Jane Fonda is so honored, you know? Yeah, so I was like, you know, it's literally all one word, Fonda Light. So I'm like... Ugh. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Okay. I don't like that. It's like, it's literally spelled F-O-N-D-A-L-I-T-E. So it's like Fonda Light. <laughs> like Bud Light. Yeah. That's all I think of. So, um... And I'm like, I'd basically say the word like fondle, which is just a fake word in itself. Fondleite. Yeah. Which I'm like, can you imagine like these four, like, I don't know, like kids and stuff like that? Like, if they ever, like, God forbid your parents met at the Fondleite Club. Like, oh, how did your parents meet? They were at the Fondleite Club. Yeah. Crickets. <laughs> Sonic um, so there he managed to pick up, of course, two women. Um, and I don't know if this was maybe like a fetish of his or what. Maybe it's just maybe it's just this thing. Um, but both of whom ironically wore eyeglasses. Uh-uh. Did he steal their eyeglasses? <laughs> he reportedly put one in the trunk while the other was forced to sit up front for him or with him, I should say. I'm sorry. While he took their eyeglasses to see if they were the right prescription for him. I mean, okay. I mean, get it. Homeboy probably doesn't have insurance, so fine, but I mean, interesting. Actually, can you imagine? He's like, here, let me see your glasses. I want them on. Like, I thought like, optometrists okay. are screaming right now. I'd be like, okay, you can keep them. I'd rather just burn them anyways if you try to hand them back to me. Like, I have a spare. It's fine. But I guess like you'd alternate between the two. So then he, I don't know, maybe once he realized that that prescription wasn't right. All right, you're going in the trunk, off to the next one. And then they like swap. Weird. Yeah. Okay. Odd. Odd for sure. Um, but then he drove them basically all the way down to his home area of Mays County, which is where Locust Grove is. Um, so Mays County. And so basically in the back country, very similar to where this camp is or Camp Scott, as I should say. Um, where he then proceeded to rape and sodomize both both of the women. So um, I tried to do a little research. I didn't quite have enough time to really dig into it, Um, but I'm not sure how he was caught, but that he was caught fortunately enough because it appeared that his his intent ultimately would have been to murder them as well. But he didn't. But he 
He did not. No, he was caught. So a part of me wonders, am I wonder if somebody like had stumbled upon them or like heard noises and called the cops or something along the lines of that, you know, sure. maybe he wasn't so far into the woods as he thought he was or yada, yada. I, like I said, I didn't exactly get the full details like how he was caught, but he definitely was. Um, so of course he goes um, to prison. He was convicted, of course, because, you know, these two women, obviously they were alive. The evidence was there, everything. Um, ironically enough, though, after serving some time in prison, um, Jean gets released on parole. How you can rape and sodomize two women and somehow still get released on parole within just years, I do not know. Yeah, it blows my mind. So as soon as he, yeah, as soon as he gets released on parole, he decides his uh, new career choice is going to be burglary. I mean, it's a more respectable profession, if you have to ask me. <laughs> yeah. So he commits a known total of four burglaries. He wasn't caught for the first three, but the fourth one he finally was. And ironically enough, it's because he chose to burglarize a female cop of Tulsa. So she was already a working cop. She had just gotten home from work at 2 a.m. Noticed a hand coming through her door after she heard some jiggling and immediately decided to grab her gun out of her purse. And basically, he was apprehended. Um, so he retired. Way- <laughs> yeah. I was like, good for her. <laughs> so yeah, she, she's like, like I got gotten here. She literally says that she, like, I guess she loans it, like she cocks it back, basically. He heard the noise and decided to run. But I don't know if he was, like, doing drugs or something at this at this time or whatever. So as he chooses to run, he doesn't go very far because apparently she's in an apartment complex. And so she calls, obviously, like, her fellow co-workers, fellow police officers, who show up to her apartment complex. And he's literally, like, upstairs, like, on the next level, trying to do the same thing again. Not the bird's life bump in the box, people. I mean, I wonder if he chose her because I wonder if he saw her coming inside her apartment and was just like right behind her. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I was kind of curious. I'm like, was she wearing eyeglasses too? Like, I don't know. But so when they captured him, of course, they go into his vehicle, which was nearby. And that's how they were able to piece together the three prior burglaries that had occurred because he's his favorite thing was to steal people like billfolds and stuff like that. It's like their wallets and in other terms. Um, I guess the most unsettling fact for that was that um one of the individuals was really disturbed because when the, the billfold was taken, he's like I realized that that billfold was sitting on my my nightstand just 10 inches away from my face. Like, if that doesn't give somebody nightmares, like, that's literally, like, that shadow in the dark. You know what I mean? Like, can you imagine waking up to that? And that was the weird thing was that they said that, like, when you look at people's, like, MOs and stuff like that, like, most of the time, a lot of burglars, if you think about them, they occur when people aren't home. Because that person doesn't want to encounter other people. They just want to steal your shit. Mm-hmm. Gene, on the other hand, he didn't give two shits if somebody was home. I, it's almost like he preferred it. Yeah. Like that creep factor, you know, of like I can literally like stare at somebody while they're sleeping and take their shit. Sure. And a lot of like um, different investigators and different like um, profilers and stuff like that will say that that hints at somebody, at just somebody who's more on the lines of like rape. You know, because they, it's nothing, it, they'd rather do something in human contact, you know what I mean? So it's like, he would rather have burglarized somebody that is, who was home versus not. Because it was like, he right. gets that hurry off of it. Yeah. So, uh, basically, once they arrest him with that for burglary, he, um, they end up trying him for all four. He is convicted of all four. He's found guilty on all four counts. And this is where I got like one of those like, I guess like head scratchy moments, you know, um, because 
So I get it. Like he was just out on parole from the prior rapes that he had done, which the fact that that's in a sentence, I don't understand that you could be out on parole after raping two women, but whatever. Um, but because he decided to seal four times, each guilty case that he had somehow got him like the judge wasn't lenient. I mean, I get it because he was on parole, but each case, basically he's found guilty. He got 90 years which was like the maximum, maximum sentence you could get for burglary. Like these are just wallets that he's taking you guys, but he got 90 years basically at peace. So altogether, they said his total sentence was going to end up being like 300 and something years. But he got released on parole after breaking two women. Yeah, well, they don't consider, I mean, even today, like, you're going to get a higher charge for getting caught. Like, I mean, maybe not as much as now, but like 10 years ago, marijuana, you put behind bars longer than that. Like rape, rape is not, it, it's crazy to me. Cause it's like, especially when people like rape someone with the intent to murder them and they don't murder them. And it's just, it, it's, it, it will forever boggle my mind that rape is not considered as, uh threatening or as dangerous as attempted murder charges or assault charges and yeah but that's a soapbox i will not step on tonight yes um so basically realizing that his line was over gene actually began of thinking of ways of thinking of things and that way of being is how to escape so, according to sources, Jean was able to escape using a, basically, almost, I'd imagine, like, a file or, like, a nail file Plus, that, his, that his mother had smuggled into jail for him. Was it in a cake? I wish it was in a cake. I wonder, maybe it was, like, a pie or something. Gotta be. That's That has to be where all of the pictures and the jokes and the gags come from. Yes. Yeah, so he did. He... I guess they said, like, there was some, like, like the bars, like, on one of, like, the cells that he was in. He was able to file through. Um, so, yeah, he escaped. And he was actually only on the run for a short period of time, though, before being caught and sent back to prison. Um, but Gene was not over yet. He wasn't about ready to give up and say, I'm going to be spending the next 300 years in prison. So it was a little unclear as to how he escaped the second time. I don't know if it was the same method or was it a different method, but either way, he was able to get out a second time. Um, and this time, he would remain on the run until after the Girl Scout murders took place. Dun, dun, dun. So, you guys, I'm going to make this a two-parter because it, the next part gets really in-depth again some more. And I will tell you the whole adventures of trying to find Gene Leroy Hart in the search for him. Because it gets a little wild. So that will be my part two for you guys. Um, we'll kind of pick up from there and really kind of dig into why was he suspect number one? Now that we know who Gene is, were there other suspects or not? All that fun stuff you get to look forward to at the next episode. Um, but before I go, I just wanted to make sure with this episode too, because I put it at the very end. So I'm strolling through my notes right now. Is I do want to cite my sources at the end here. Um, and I will do it again for the next episode, of course, too. So the first, there's a few of them here. So there was crimemuseum.com. They did an article on the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. There's the lineup.com by Casey, or sorry, Kelsey Christine McConnell. And then there's literally a website called girlscoutmurders.com. And of course, I'd, like I mentioned to you guys before, there's a Hulu documentary. The name of it is actually called Keeper of the Ashes. And it was um, hosted by Kristen Chenoweth. Like I said, she's an actor or actress, I should say. And like I said, it, it, I don't know if you look at it, Darcy, you might be able to picture her from something. I know she did a lot of Broadway, so maybe that's some of it where I remember her from. I don't know. She's like a blonde Southern lady. Your typical What's like, her name? Kristen what? Kristen with a K. Chenoweth. Oh, yeah. 
See, like she has, she looks familiar. I just don't know exactly where she's from. She's almost like that typical like sitcom blonde. You know what I mean? Yeah, she's from RV, Descendants, Holiday, Deck the Halls, Pushing Daisies, Four Christmases, and The Witches. Those are just some highlights of her work. Yeah. She also stroke, like, struck me as like the type of uh, actress that would be in a lot of like um, Hallmark movies. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, so those are my sources, you guys. Like I said, please, please, please tune into part two because um, it does get a little wild again. And yeah. I'm excited to tell you more about it in the next episode, you guys. Insert SVU music here. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I think about. It's like, whatever that fucking, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, you should probably definitely put that at the end of this. You'll find a way. I will happily. I'll find a way. It's fine. We'll just derby it. We'll edit that. Okay. Well, cheers. Shannon. That is beautiful. Cheers. 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 Okay. I have to say, um, if you've made it this far, oh, thanks. But also, okay, dude, <laughs> in the last episode, did you see how hard the fails were for like, yeah, specifically? I was like, you can't hear it. You know why? Because the editing software, that studio sound cuts all of that out. Not that it was probably there before, to be honest, but I was just like in dying, like silent laughter. I was like, I was so, I was so proud of myself in that moment. Anyone who just listens, you have no idea. So you have to watch it on YouTube. It's just, it's yes. fabulous. Yes. Oh, God. Uh, All right. Well, I'm super excited. Um, Next week's episode is going to be, it's funny that you did this one because my episode also takes place uh, in the woods and it also involves rape of, of women. So uh, weird. That was not planned. So, I know, this was like that first actual, I, I was a little nervous at first. I'm like, well, it's not like a serial killer per se. So I don't think Darcy's going to cover it. <laughs> and then, like, it's just murder. Yeah, I know. Um, but I'm very excited to hear the end of that one. So I'll be looking for I'll get to hear it next week. You guys won't, but I will. So, <laughs> <laughs> but awesome. Thank you so much, Shannon. A round of applause for you. Yay. And um, we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.